0: I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. The question that resurfaces in a time of horror, one of them may be, what remains when memory is wiped out, when the unspeakable is left unspoken? In someone's hope, perhaps, that it'll be forgotten. Where does history live? Jeremy Eichler's answer is that music becomes the code of our darkest secrets. Babi Yar is the ravine in Kyiv where Nazi invaders killed and dumped the bodies of more than 33,000 Jews in the last couple of days of September 1941. It became an officially unmentionable disgrace to the Germans who executed the atrocity and to the Ukrainians and Russians who didn't stop it. Almost 20 years later, and ever since then, Babayar got its standing as the biggest mass murder in the Nazi war on the Soviet Union, but only because Yevgeny Yevtushenko wrote a famous poem about it called Babayar, and Dmitry Shostakovich in turn defied the authorities to compose a Babayar memorial at the head of his 13th symphony. There in one grim anecdote is how history lives inside music. Music as a last refuge of history that we confront no other way. Jeremy Eichler, you've written an irresistible new book from the ruins of the 20th century called Time's Echo, the Second World War, the Holocaust, and the Music of Remembrance, and very particularly about four giants in 20th century music. Richard Strauss, Arnold Schoenberg, Dmitry Shostakovich, the Russian, and Benjamin Britten, the Englishman. Jeremy Eichler, what we want is for you to teach us how to listen to this music, but then also how it is that music lives more significantly than stone monuments. But start with Baba Yar. Yes, thank
1: you, Chris, so much for having me. And Baba Yar, as you mentioned, was the worst massacre of Jews on Soviet soil during the years of the Holocaust. And... As you say, it went completely unmarked. In fact, the Soviet regime tried to erase the ravine itself Mm. from the landscape by filling it in, causing in some kind of tragically literal return of the repressed. There was a a mudslide, a dam broke and a mudslide killed hundreds, if not thousands of people as a result of trying to erase the evidence. It was Yevtushenko, as you say, who first put this into verse. But I think that Dmitry Shostakovich's 13th Symphony whose first movement is a setting of the Yevdeshenko poem, it provides a memorial in a kind of deeper, broader, and more affecting sense. You know, one of the bigger themes of this book I've just written is how poems could be suppressed, monuments could either be not erected to begin with or could Mm. be toppled, books could be burned, But music is, in this profound sense, as a medium of memory, it's untouchable in the best of ways. And it has a kind of durability. It has a kind of transportability, if you will. You have to go to some of the places I write about to see the physical memorials, but the music Mm. comes to you. It reaches inside of us. The critic John Berger said, when we listen to a song, we find ourselves inside a message, And so thinking about these different messages of these different works and how they reach us, how they're with us today, and how they carry forward this kind of still living past at the moment that the generation, that experience, that era is receding, all of those questions were really the animating ones for Time's Echo.
0: Can I say, it fascinates me that Shostakovich lives in our world today, even in mine here in Boston doing radio shows. We did one with Anders Nelson of the Boston Symphony, who identifies very, very closely with him as a man, but also these incredible stories. Was he a think for Stalin, or was he a heroic resistor of Stalin? We've heard those arguments, and you have to come out on Shostakovich's side how he suffered, waiting for Stalin to call him literally on the phone and say, uh-uh. Oh, you're going to New York to represent and denounce yourself and praise me. All of this torture, and on one program... Four different people called and said, most of the women, I think, I played for Shostakovich. There's a wonderful violinist in the Boston Symphony today who played for Shostakovich. So something lives there in the memory of him. Yes, exactly. It's funny, Chris, in
1: the classical music world, at least, we often tend to speak about timeless masterpieces. And when we call something a timeless masterpiece, that's very lovely praise. I think that's you know one of our highest praises. And yet to say that is to also take the music outside of time, outside of history. And part of what this book does is really try to listen to history through music's ears and to really try to get at these works of music through the history of their times because I think there is a profound interpenetration between the two that can bring forward to us into our contemporary moment this really unique kind of felt contact with these moments in the past that other art forms and maybe other forms of history don't make as
0: easily available. Is there a section, a phrase, a theme in that Bobby Yar Symphony that, that you want our listeners to hear again. Absolutely.
1: The very opening lines, we hear the chorus singing the line that over Bobby Yar, there is no monument. And I think it's fair to say that as they sang those lines at the work's premiere in the early 1960s, it was really the first monument coming up out of the void.
0: W.R. 1941, Shostakovich wrote this piece in the early 60s? Yes. What do we know about the gestation of these ideas in Shostakovich's mind and his life? The poem was published, I believe, in September 1961.
1: And, you know, it's interesting, Shostakovich, only a year earlier, had finally succumbed and joined the Communist Party. Mm. And this is something that's not often sort of summoned in accounts of this piece. This was totally baffling to many of his friends and associates because he had resisted party membership across years where it was much more dangerous and difficult to do so. Why did he succumb now? Everyone was so confused. It was as if the membership made him feel more emboldened to say something Profoundly critical about his own society, because the Bobby Yar poem is only one of five Yevtushenko poems set in the Thirteenth Symphony, and collectively, it became sort of the most publicly critical
0: statement Shostakovich would ever make of the Soviet regime. He was not a subtle person. Was it his Fourth Symphony, which Stalin said could not be played, and it was not played until the 1960s in Russia, and not much in the West either. But there are phrases in it that people translate as saying, in effect, Stalin, you're dead and I'm alive. He was, in his own peculiar way, very direct.
1: Yes, we could have a bunch of conversations about what gets called Shostakovich's sort of Aesopian language, ways that he was sort of saying one thing to one group of listeners while another to a second group. It was with the Fifth Symphony that interpretive schism came about, where basically... Many of his works got to be heard in a kind of affirmative key by Mm -hmm. members of the party. And yet at the same time, he was seen as a kind of fellow sufferer by so many just ordinary Soviet citizens who then came to hear in his music this sort of statement of struggle and of a kind of search for inner expression in a world that was constituted by lies. Is there a passage in the music in which we
0: can hear
1: his mind. Yeah, one of the passages I find most compelling, in some sense the most kind of unguarded emotion, comes from his 1944 Second Piano Trio. Yeah. This is an extraordinary piece that was a memorial to the critic Ivan Solertinsky, who had died, Shostakovich's very close friend. It also may have been a memorial to, again, Jews murdered on Soviet soil as part of the Holocaust. The finale was written during exactly the period that the Red Army had just liberated the camp of Majdanek. And there were the first reports on the existence of these unbelievable factories of death that had been discovered. These reports were being read out over the radio and just during the same period, Shostakovich is sketching the finale of his second piano trio. And for the first time in his entire life and his creative output, Shostakovich, who is not Jewish, all of a sudden starts using Jewish themes in his music. You have these kind of klezmer-like melodies that kind of evolve into this sort of wild, ecstatic, kind of frenzied, dance tunes that eventually sort of completely exhaust themselves and drift off quietly into the night. The effect is absolutely chilling.
0: Shostakovich, of course, was a Russian patriot who wrote a great Leningrad symphony about the near extinction of what is now Petersburg was Petersburg before. What does that tell you? Those amazing stories of rehearsing that symphony while it was under siege, blockade by Nazi Germany. and yeah, the stories of the Leningrad premiere of the Seventh
1: Symphony kind of strain the mind. I mean that's that's kind of music as history making, just in this kind of much more direct and just linear sense, you know, you have Just the idea that Shostakovich wrote this piece, that it was premiered in the starving city under siege, that they had to call back Mm. soldiers from the front to be able to perform in the orchestra, that before the performance, they angled their loudspeakers towards the Nazi troop. Encampments, so as to kind of project in this ultimate gesture of sonic psychological warfare the kind of the sound of their impending victory or of, at least of their defiance, it boggles the mind. Rostropovich, the cellist, used to talk about how in a sick society, people turned to art in general and music in particular as a kind of medicine. And I think that hunger, that desire, that need to feel understood and heard by the art in one's life. That comes through in some of these reports from Soviet cultural history and these incredible ways. You know, the, the writer, thinker, philosopher Isaiah Berlin went to Moscow in 1945 and comes back with these stories of readings of Pasternak and Anna Akhmatova, their writing being passed from soldier to soldier on the front. There are these poetry readings where Pasternak pauses for a moment and half the audience continues on because they know all the poems by memory. I mean, you just get this sense of a country and, and its citizenry that was just in certain quarters so intensely bonded to its art, not as a kind of decorative addition to their lives, but as the very
0: center. It's very strange. An American going to Leningrad, St. Petersburg today, probably stays at the Hotel Astoria. I've been there. And the legend is alive that Hitler had imagined a victory dinner at the Astoria Hotel. But also there's the line that the people he wanted hung with ceremony were Stalin and Shostakovich.
1: Yes, and Ilya Ehrenborg, the writer who yeah. traveled with the Red Army and was very involved in documenting all of these atrocities at that time.
0: Arnold Schoenberg is our second superstar in this story, famously the inventor of serial music, atonal modern music, liberated dissonance, as he put it. But before that, the surprise to me was that he was an arch-German composer and identifier, also that his first stop in his exile in the United States after the war was Brookline, Massachusetts, just over the line, introduces to this more German than German, more Wagnerian than Wagner composer well into his mid-career. Yes, he's a fascinating figure who I think crystallizes so
1: many of these kinds of tensions in some ways, contradictions of German and German Jewish history across the 19th and 20th centuries. I mean, one way to think about Schoenberg and his nationalism was that he was really a child of the 19th century, Mm. where so often art was fundamentally kind of indentured, we could say, to the needs of, or the perceived needs of nationalism. And so throughout his life, he seemed to possess this kind of inalterable need to Connect his own creation to some kind of larger collective. For many years, as you say, the first half of his career, it was the German collective. It was when he discovered his 12 tone method of composition, he pledged it to the supremacy of German music Mm. for the next 100 years. (laughs) And of course, German patriotism, German nationalism within the arts was hardly a novel phenomenon at the time. You know, so many. Austro-German artists went absolutely crazy when the First World War broke out and became hyper-militant. You know, Freud himself pledged all of his libido to (laughs) Austria-Hungary. But the great poignant aspect of Schoenberg's life, of course, is the fact that through the 1920s, the promise he had, in a sense, bought into the possibility of leading German art into its modern atonal promised land, that promise was rescinded progressively year by year as He was subjected to anti-Semitism as essentially this idea of being a leader of German arts was rejected from the outside. There are these incredibly powerful letters he writes to Kandinsky in 1923. He realizes, I'm not actually even a German. I may not even be a human being. It seems the identity that's being thrust upon him was that he is in fact a Jew. And then from that point on, we see an embrace of a jewish political identity that becomes increasingly obsessed with the dangers mounting for european jewry eventually he flees in 1933 and his time in america is spent at least at the beginning very intensely involved with the fight for what he called the jewish national cause kind of shocking awake european jewry to the impending catastrophe
0: right and the capital of german music in certain sense moves from Vienna to Los Angeles, and Stravinsky's there eventually, and Thomas Mann, and so many others. Speak of this music we're hearing. It was called Survivor from Warsaw, written in Los Angeles in 1947. It's a long time later, but it is the first, specifically an intentional memorial to the Holocaust. I want you to help us hear it as history.
1: Yes, this was, as you say, incredibly early. The year was 1947, Chris, and uh, this work was written on a commission from the Kusevitsky Music Foundation. Most of the pieces that Kusevitsky commissioned through his foundation were premiered by the Boston Symphony, his own ensemble. In this case, the score arrived and it seemed he did not really want to touch it. It has a piece for narrator, describing a scene from a concentration camp. It may have even been an extermination camp where Jews are woken, beaten, and sent to the gas chambers. So this was a shocking scene for its time. This was before there was a single built memorial anywhere in the United States to the Holocaust, and before there was a single book of published survivor testimony.
0: But I have no recollection how I got underground to live in the sewers of Warsaw so long a time.
1: It was a period where Night by Elie Wiesel could not find a publisher. Primo Levi's Survival in Auschwitz could not find a publisher, let alone an audience. And here was Schoenberg coming with this shocking work of 12-tone music that told the story of the Holocaust in extremely vivid terms. And so it was considered essentially by Kusevitsky, it seems, unplayable. As a result, it has its world premiere ultimately in a university gymnasium in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with an amateur orchestra and cowboys singing in the chorus.
0: Wow. Get, out. Get out! The sergeant will be furious! They came out, some very slow, the old ones, the sick men, some with nervous agility. They threw the sergeant. They hurry as much as they can, in vain. Stick with Kuzovic for a moment. Serge Kuzovic, commissioned and played first performances of a lot of great music, himself Jewish. What was his hesitation about the survivor from Warsaw?
1: You know, it's a great question. We don't know for sure what he objected to. There's some letter where he says that he finds the text depressing, I think that was kind of shorthand for the fact that Kusevitsky was an artist who had a very different take on the purpose of art in the wake of atrocity. Mm. And that's a whole other fascinating question. What should memorials really do? Should they help us move on? Should they, in Kusevitsky's view, should art after the war Mm. be kind of restoring us to our humanity through its beauty, through its sense of these older eternal values? Should it be a kind of balm on our sort of shattered sensibility and our, Mm. our shattered hearts and souls. That, it seems, from his speeches that he was giving to the incoming class at the Berkshire Music Center after the war, that seems to be how Kusevitsky thought of things. Schoenberg and others, like the critic Theodore Adorno... I was going to say,
0: remind us of the famous Adorno line.
1: Yes. The famous Adorno line was that after Auschwitz, there should be no poetry. To write poetry after Auschwitz would be barbaric, was his famous line. That's the one that gets quoted a lot. The one that people don't remember as often is that he actually revised that opinion years later Hmm. and came back to the subject in order to honor art's power of witness. And he wrote, because the world has outlived its own demise, it needs art as its unconscious chronicle. Wow. So that whole idea of art as an unconscious chronicle, as a kind of witness to history and a carrier of memory for a post-Holocaust world, that's really been the larger theme I've been thinking about with all of this music. In Schoenberg's case, I think we have a shocking early example of this powerful memorial that takes the opposite approach that Kusevitsky wanted to take. It takes the approach of forcing the moment of barbarism directly into the frame of the work of art itself. The idea being that maybe... This shouldn't be about resting in peace. This should be about disturbing us, making us sleep a little bit less comfortably, and in so doing, perhaps holding on to some of these reasons that societies go to war in the first
0: place. Wow. Point us to a section, Jeremy, where we feel that defiance of the Adorno doctrine can be no art, and we are going to relive something of the experience.
1: I think that you feel it In the intense dissonance of this peace survivor from Warsaw, you feel it in this incredible orchestral crescendo as the narrator is finishing his story, as these prisoners are being beaten, literally beaten with rifle butts and counted off for the gas chambers. Schoenberg orchestrates this extraordinary crescendo that culminates in the central prayer of Judaism, the Shema Yisrael. faster and faster, so fast, that it finally sounded like a stampede
0: of wild horses. And all of a sudden, in the middle of it, they began singing the Shemalia.
1: think that actually this was exactly what Adorno hoped post-war art could do, that it could carry forward the memory of the barbarism, not just comfort us, but actually carry forward what had happened. And he compared Schoenberg's Survivor from Warsaw to Guernica, Picasso's painting, and its depiction of that barbarism and in the way it wrenched these moments of evil directly into the frame of the work of art itself.
0: Jeremy, I'm glad you make that connection to Guernica, now finally owned by the Spanish government, about the Spanish War in the 30s, in the run-up to World War II. You see Guernica sometimes attacked as kitsch these days. Schoenberg's art
1: is also sometimes this particular piece, Survivor from Warsaw, has also been attacked as kitsch. I have to think a little bit differently in judging these memorials. But whether they're paintings or music, in more than just aesthetic terms, the works I write about are always about more than just music, right? And they had all of these uses for their society at the time. It was an interesting challenge to figure out what should be the yardstick when judging a memorial. Should a built monument be judged as sculpture? Should a musical memorial be judged against, you know, a symphonic score? No, there's more going on here. And part of the interesting thing was to follow these works sort of out into the open and see the other lives, the other landscapes, the other works of literature that they illuminated, you find that these pieces become these sort of tiny keyholes that we can look through, and they open up onto these much vaster
0: vistas of history and memory. I want you to guide us through Richard Strauss's Metamorphosen. Strauss is a sort of outlier at the center of this story. I remember Gunther Schuller rehearsing a big Strauss piece, and saying to the whole orchestra, it might be good to remember that he had more music in his mind, body, and spirit than everybody else in this room put together. And yet he's a tragic figure, a great composer who didn't exactly join the Nazis, but he he held on to his formal titles through the Nazi period and has paid for it ever since. Explain this man. What was he going through? He saw so much and missed the picture.
1: I think he did see so much into the depths and the history of the art form. At the same time, he was really quick to separate the great German musical tradition from its kind of ethical imperative. You know, he had no patience for an artist, the approach of an artist like Mahler. He respected him enormously as a composer. But in Mahler's music, into the 20th century, you still see the sort of dimming torch of German music's ethical vision was still flickering. You know, this idea that music can uplift us, that it can be
0: connected to a sense of communal well-being. Explain that word Bildung, We know it sort of in Bildungsroman, The Story of a Life, David Copperfield, and many others. But what did that word Bildung mean to Germany? What did it mean to Richard Strauss?
1: Yes, Bildung is, as you say, kind of an ubiquitous but also untranslatable word. We have no direct equivalent in English, but it really stood for this idea that art in general and, and the finer arts, performing arts, the poetry, music, literature, that these things could somehow that they could work a change in us as human beings Mm. that was not just about, you know, giving us a nice night out at the opera or a few calm moments of, you know, reading a novel and, and admiring the language, but that these things cumulatively, you know, taken in over the studied, enjoyed over the course of a life could sort of ennoble us. They could lift the spirit. They could make us better people, essentially, educate the sensibility. And that was a concept that Schoenberg, for example, and many German-speaking Jews of the period really attached themselves to quite fervently. There were these stories of German Jews getting entire Volumes of Goethe for their bar mitzvah present. You know, this Mm. was kind of iconically speaking because the promise of Bildung for groups on the margins of German society was that if you love this German art like we do, you too can be kind of respected as an equal. This was the theme of a kind of emancipation through culture that German Jews bought into, and certainly Schoenberg's generation did. It becomes incredibly poignant because that whole idea of Bildung is sort of warped and weaponized over the course of the yeah. 19th century so that it comes to stand in for we Germans have the best, you know, the best symphonies, the best literature, that German culture becomes a badge of nationalist superiority as we go into World War I. Mm. And it gets, of course, the story just gets worse and worse from there. Strauss, to get back to what you were asking about, many have seen Strauss standing on Wagner's shoulders, musically speaking, but basically saying he had no patience for this whole heavy, ethical, metaphysical baggage of German music. He wanted to kind of shear it all off and basically say, I want to make German music proudly modern. I want it to speak to the kind of disjunctions of life in the modern world. I don't want all of this heavy ethical baggage. And, you know, there is a slippery slope between, you know, making that move with German music's ethical inheritance and then espousing a kind of political nihilism in his own life that allowed him, when Hitler came to power in 1933, essentially say, well, you know, it's bad, but maybe it's not so bad, and I think that perhaps I, Strauss, could could find a way of making a contribution to German society by working with the Nazi government. He accepted the presidency of the Reich Chamber of Music, a post that he held all the way into 1935. He allowed the Nazis to use his music and his presence in the country to legitimate their own authority. So it's a really complicated story. He also had Jewish family members, and so he felt himself kind of over a barrel. He kept on having to call in favors to senior Nazi officials in order to protect his own Mm. uh, daughter-in-law and his grandchildren. So, you know, it was a partnership of opportunity. He does not come out looking very good through these years. Then in 1944, near the end of the war, It seems there's some kind of dawning inner awareness for him about just how horrible everything has become, how German music has essentially been debased beyond recognition, how his own reputation itself, how he's tainted it probably
0: forever through his own ethical choices. I hear you saying that around that notion of Bildung, the whole composite cultural Renaissance man, he's segmenting it. I think what he was essentially saying is that
1: that he found that whole ethical charge, that utopian aspiration at the heart of the 19th century German cultural project, he found that old fashioned. He Mm -hmm. wanted to be a proudly modern guy. He loved his kind of sort of objective authorial detachment from his own creation. He loved to kind of strike those poses. At the same time, you know, he was Richard Strauss. Romain Roland called him a classic in spite of it all, you know, and he himself towards the end of his life eventually you know, was using metaphors referring to himself as the last mountain in the great mountain range of German music. Mm. In a sense there is a truth to that and that's also partly what makes Metamorphosen so powerful because it becomes more than one artist's own confessional statement. It also I think you can hear it as a moment where German music sort of debased beyond recognition begins listening to itself and that Strauss at that very late moment, realizes that at that point in the war, this whole broader tradition of German music could really rightfully be summoned by its own name for one task alone, which is to serve as a memorial to itself. And he sits down and he writes this incredible work, about 25 minutes long, for string orchestra, this kind of work of spiraling, sorrowing beauty Mm. "Metamorphosen," It has instantly a kind of confessional tone to it, and he writes underneath a quote from Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, the funeral march of the Eroica Symphony, Strauss writes the words, in memoriam. Mm.
0: in your book Jeremy there's a remarkable correspondence between Richard Strauss and Stefan Zweig the great cultural champion of Vienna until it collapsed before his eyes Zweig was Jewish of course he tried to help Richard Strauss over the gap yes and Strauss wouldn't go in a
1: way yeah that's such a powerful correspondence i found Strauss's primary artistic partner as a librettist had been Hugo von Hofmannsthal who was responsible for the libretti of Elektra, Rosenkavalier, and many other operas. He dies in 1929, and Strauss is totally bereft, thinking he may not ever write another opera. Along comes Stefan Zweig, and they work together Brilliantly, together they very quickly produce an opera called The Silent Woman, Die Schweigsame Frau, and Strauss just absolutely adores working with Zweig. Then there is this kind of slightly inconvenient fact that Hitler rises to power in 1933. Hitler Mm. seizes power, we should say, and Zweig is an Austrian Jew. Strauss wants to continue their collaboration essentially in secrecy. Uh, This makes Zweig incredibly uncomfortable. And you see in their correspondence back and forth what I view really as a kind of prism through which we view, symbolically speaking, the real-time disillusion of this entire German-Jewish
0: symbiosis. Hmm. I'm thinking of a rather pathetic statement from Strauss that you quote at length in which he says, of course, he's not anti-Semitic. He's played and learned with innumerable Jews that he's ever indebted to. He's got Jews in his family. He's never thought of it that way. But he's saying to Zweig, in effect, enough already with the with the ethnic thing. Do we have to bother with that? Did Mozart consider himself, you know, a representative of German-ness or of Aryan values? Let's forget about it. Yes, this was a letter that he
1: wrote to Zweig that Zweig actually never received because the Gestapo had been monitoring Strauss's mail and In the same letter that you're quoting, Strauss claims that he has been kind of aping the presidency of the Reich Chamber of Music, and this could not be allowed to stand. And they basically forced Strauss's resignation from his post at that point. But yeah, it is an astonishing, incredibly offensive letter, actually, that really reflects more than anything else, I think, the kind of blinding force of artistic egoism. Mm. Uh, And yet Strauss leaves us ultimately with this work, Metamorphosin. What's amazing, Chris, is it kind of gets at, it was Schoenberg who had this line that only in music can you confess your heart while keeping your secrets. Mm. I think that that really applies to *Metamorphosen*. There's clearly something confessional happening, but the only actual words Strauss gives us in association with this, score are those two words in memoriam, but he never specifies, you know, in memorial to what or to whom. And the place I ended up in my thinking about this was over 75 years after his death, maybe he doesn't get to answer that question anymore. So in thinking about these composers, I've also been thinking about how, you know, it's one thing to think about what their intentions were in creating these musical memorials, but it's also another question about what are some of the meanings we might actively bring to them? How might we actually inscribe these works with some stories that do not get remembered, that were not part of what the composers were possibly intending and yet, for me at least, once I've put the two together, I cannot hear one without thinking of the other. To give you an example, Strauss seemed all too impervious to the kind of suffering that was going on around him, at least outside of his own family, but in his small Bavarian town, as his neighbors were being gathered up in the town square on Kristallnacht, they were being spit upon and forced to sign a declaration to leave the town by sundown and never come back. You went there i went there i tell the story of strauss's german Jewish neighbors, a couple called Michael and Emmy Schnabel. He was a papyrus researcher and an Egyptologist, and she was a lover of German literature. And the two were gathered that day on Kristallnacht in the middle of the town square. They were spit upon. They were forced to sign this declaration that they planned to leave. Mm. They got turned away at the Austrian border town of Feldkirch. They got turned back, I should say, and they took their own lives by suicide, leaving a note a little bit like Zweig's saying that they preferred to die rather than to live the rest of their lives in exile from the fatherland. So these are some of the stories that I try to actively inscribe into this music, and there are many others like this, the story of British bombers who were shot down after bombing the city of Munich, their bodies still to this day, some of them at the bottom of a lake near Strauss's home. I worked very hard to surface also these forgotten stories and ask whether
0: perhaps the music can help us remember them too. Let us talk of Benjamin Britten, the youngest of the four, Englishman, of course, born 1913, and he writes The War Requiem in 1962. I'm interested in The War Requiem. I'm especially interested in the correspondence it engendered between Britten and, of all people, Shostakovich. Can you tell us that story? Shostakovich loved
1: the score as a whole. He likened it to Mozart's Requiem, to Mahler's Das Lied von der Erde. Mm. He thought of it as one of the great works of music history. Uh, Rostropovich once told me that Shostakovich's favorite movement was the Agnus stay movement, uh, which, opens with this, of God. Yes, which opens with this beautiful kind of rising and falling line. And there's also, of course, most iconically probably the moment that has captured most listeners' imagination is this very powerful setting that Britain gives us of Wilfred Owen's poem Strange Meeting where we have two soldiers from opposite sides of the First World War essentially meeting in this underground tunnel and realizing that they're both dead having killed each other mm-hmm. and it's a really powerful poignant way of getting at Owen's message of the kind of pity of war as he put it the sheer wasted lives the wasted hours that was the First World War was of course an event that someone like Britain it was kind of the crucible of his pacifism he was a profoundly sincere pacifist and this was a war where it was easy to be that way because you know the two sides as they slaughtered each other willy-nilly you know these soldiers if you stopped one of them mid-battle and said excuse me sir why are you fighting most of them many of them could not even tell you and yet we have this kind of carnage and such unbelievable numbers it's interesting to trace what happens to Britain's pacifism. I think it becomes more difficult. It's, it becomes a more difficult line to hold as you start looking at wars like the Spanish Civil War and then the Second World War, where you have, you know, the Allied countries going up against fascism, where you have state sponsored genocide. What does a pacifist philosophy say about that kind of a war? I think rather than ask those rather difficult questions in the war requiem, Britain was able to commemorate the Second World War using the poetry of the First World War, in a sense, allowing him to preserve the purity of his own pacifism.
0: Mm. And then Britain and Shostakovich mm. become partners yes. in some spiritual sense. Explain yes. that. Quote what you can of the letters.
1: Yes, Shostakovich gets a score from Rostropovich. First he gets a a recording of the War Requiem. This is in the early 1960s, and he's just blown away by this thing. He wants to play it for everyone he can, Mm. and he speaks of it as superior to so many other works on, on a plane with Mozart's Requiem and Mahler's Das Lied von der Erde. And they start this correspondence where Shostakovich, was a very guarded and private man, starts writing these beautifully open-hearted letters to Britain saying things like, your music is the most important phenomenon of the 20th century. Hmm. He writes, I hear you're doing other kinds of concert work. I think he meant as a performer, but you must still continue composing. He writes, it's necessary for humanity and certainly for me. Mm. So, you know, these very touchingly open-hearted letters, and what, what, Britain was slightly more guarded, as I think as a person and in their correspondence, but also had enormous affection for Schoenberg. There was a line from one of them at some point that their war requiem and Shostakovich's Bobby Yar symphony were children of similar fathers. And I think that it's the children themselves that help the fathers realize how similar they were and that this correspondence then takes shape. And in a sense, this beautiful artistic friendship culminates in Shostakovich's creation of his 14th symphony, which is this beautiful symphony of songs dedicated to Benjamin Britten. It is a remarkable piece uh, on texts that all speak about death, immortality, and farewell. It sounds very bleak. And it is very bleak, but there are two incredible exceptions to that bleakness. Um, one of them is the ninth movement called O Delvig, Delvig, And this is a setting of a poem by Wilhelm Kuchelbecker, this sort of obscure Decembrist poet who just writes this lovely text. And you could see why it appealed immediately to Shostakovich. It's all a text about artistic friendship and about mm. this kind of bond between two artists that will remain strong. Mm. Uh, despite the triumphs of the tyrants and the fools. That's the spirit of the text. And in this symphony that has, in some moments, a real kind of deathly chill, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the Ninth Movement comes along, this Odelvic Delvic setting, and the music just surges with a kind of warmth and open-heartedness that I think was very much Shostakovich's tribute to Britain. And lest there be any kind of question in Britain's mind about what was intended in this movement, Shostakovich followed up the symphony by gifting Britain a portrait of Anton Delvig. other really, to my mind, very memorable moment in this particular symphony. It's all memorable, but there's an extraordinary movement, a setting of Apollinaire's poem, The Suicide. And in it, Mm. um, the poem depicts a man lying in his grave. And we know from the biographer, Shostakovich considered suicide at multiple times in his life. And in some very Powerful metaphorical way. He's a man who gave his life to his art and to his country. And in this poem, we know Chasukovich is identifying with the man lying in his grave in part from the kind of incredible luminosity of the opening music. It starts with this kind of cello solo, and then a soprano enters singing of three white lilies and the pitches of the soprano's entrance as she sings, three lilies, three lilies, they're all gathered from the pitches that we know were part of Shostakovich's own musical signature. Mm. So he's essentially you know leaving us all of these little hints of a kind of intense identification with this poem. What does the poem go on to express? It talks about how there are these three lilies growing out of the grave of this grave of this man who had taken his own life, one growing from his mouth, one growing from the sight of his heart and one growing from the sight of his wound. And it always struck me just on its face. It's an astonishingly beautiful song. And then you kind of realize with an extra shiver that these lilies are in some very basic metaphorical way. These stand in for Shostakovich's art itself Mm. that these lilies that are reaching out from the grave are these songs reaching from that time into our own and that this music about death has in fact kind of enacted its own escape and in fact we are listening to music that is of and about immortality and that larger theme of the immortality of art against this century with so much horrendous death, that was another theme that helped me get through working with so much bleak material mm. and thinking about, in a sense, memory in these conditions is is also a life force. It's a force of generativity for these Mm. individual lives, these individual stories, but also possibly one hopes for our society as a whole because each of these works to have a memorial is to carry something forward and what's carried forward can be built upon, right? And so each of these different memorials in a way points towards the future and asks us to recognize the fragility of the values you know, these older Enlightenment values, these values of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the fragility, these these memorials make us realize that these values have to be kind of affirmed by societies at every turn. And that was really another aspect of this project that kept me going through the years.
0: Jeremy Eichler, I think you've persuaded us that music stands alone and entirely different from every other kind of Memorial, or statue, or dedication, or holiday, or... Absolutely. Yeah, music as a kind of window onto cultural and social
1: history is, I think, a, it's a beautiful lens. It's what, you know, to spend some time thinking about how music does what it does incredibly well and how as a time-based medium it has, shares these elective affinities with memory itself. Mm. The way music brings these moments that are distant in time closer to us, that's just like what memory does, right? It, it kind of music as the language of time's non-linearity, the way it kind of flouts the folk forward march of the years, the way it kind of challenges the objective distance of history. This is what music does. This is what memory does. Putting them next to each other in our minds and, and on the page, in a sense, was something that seemed worth doing, especially right now. I say right now, meaning as the generation that lived through that era is itself receding. And of course, all of this takes on more and more resonance, it seems, you know, with all of the disturbing news that we're living through today.
0: The phrases I'm going to remember are the pity of war, you credit Wilfred Owen, but also it's the Schoenberg notion of awareness of suffering. We should Mm. be much more aware that people are suffering in this world. Absolutely. And I think that part of
1: what comes with listening to the past through music's ears is this heightened sense of not just felt contact with these earlier eras, but also of empathy, like you say, empathy for suffering in other times and possibly suffering during our
0: own. Jeremy Eichler, thank you enormously for 10 years' work that went into Time's Echo, the book, The Second World War, The Holocaust, and the Music of Remembrance. Thank you, Jeremy, for this conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Chris, for the conversation, for the show, and for giving us a moment to share some of these ideas with your listeners.
0: Jeremy Eichler's new book is Time's Echo, the Second World War, the Holocaust, and the Music of Remembrance. You can find more of Jeremy's writing in the Boston Globe where he's the chief classical music critic. And finally, a brief appeal. Open Source is an independent podcast, meaning we count on listeners to sustain our work. If you haven't done so yet, please think of making a contribution. We've made it easy. You can become a paid subscriber to our Substack newsletter or join our Patreon community. Just visit radioopensource.org slash donate for details. If this first and longest running podcast out there is important to you, please help keep it going. And thank you.